And I think for the first time, people have come up to me and say, hey, your title today is very interesting. Uh, if you look at it, it is Torah, Torah, Torah. Okay, so I think I should explain what it means. Uh, Torah is the Hebrew word which gets translated into law in the Old Testament. So Torah means law or means instruction. Uh, but also Torah, 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 uh, different spelling, is also the phrase that the Japanese fighter pilots, that was the code word that they relayed back to their superiors, which meant that they caught the Americans unguarded when they attacked Pearl Harbor. Torah, Torah, Torah. Uh, okay, we got them by surprise. Okay, so Torah means law. And uh, Torah, Torah, our enemy, sin, often catches us by surprise and a battle, a conflict ensues. Uh, it is not a simple passage, so we must really ask God to help us. Please pray with me. Father, thank you that not just here, but all over the world, your word is going forth. And you use weak vessels to proclaim your word. And even though, Father, we are weak, even though our minds are limited, we have the promise of your Holy Spirit, which will bring light which will cause your truth to come alive in our hearts. Only you can do that. And so with this passage that is so complex, that has baffled so many people, ensuing debate uh, that still goes on, uh, Father, we come and we come in humility, asking that you speak to us. Please speak so that we hear. Please speak so that we can be transformed so that we can live for you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, you can see in uh, your bulletin that the first point is died to the law. And it's looking at verses 1 to 6. Verses 1 to 6, more properly, belongs with uh, the end of chapter 6. Because Paul, if you look at uh, chapter 6, verse 14... Uh, he's still dealing with the issue there in verse 14 and 15. Because in verse 14 he said, Sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law, but under grace. So this was something that he said, and he anticipates the objection in verse 15. Huh? What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? Okay, so we looked at that passage about how, you know, we serve either sin or we serve God. But the interesting thing is the second half of chapter 6, even though he's trying to deal with the question, shall we sin because we are not under law? In the rest of chapter 6, the word law isn't actually mentioned. So chapter 7, 1 to 6, is Paul's rounding off of the argument. He's coming now to this point where he is finally providing the conclusion to their objection. Now, what does it mean to be uh, not under law, but under grace? Okay, you can think of it this way. Uh, if you are an undergraduate, you know, studying in a university, if you are under law, it means you are in a system where your performance counts, where how well you do matters. It matters towards what kind of degree you get at the end. Okay, you're under law, your performance matters. But if you're not under law, 
and you're under some other system, okay, some other system, and the other system is no matter how badly you do, your parents will pay the university and you will still get your first class honours. Okay, so under the performance system, you're under law, how well you do matters towards the degree you get. But if you're under another system, then it's just your parents paying money and you will get the first class honours no matter how badly you do. And so the, the, the Paul is saying you're not under the performance system. You are under another system. And so the objection is, huh? If, if you're under this system, does it mean I, I just don't study? I just don't care? I know I don't, I, I just flung every test. Okay, and so Paul has tried to deal with that question because, uh, okay, okay, we won't rehash the argument. Okay, so not under the law means we're not under the system where our performance of how well we keep the law affects our destiny. If we are not under the law, we are under grace. And so Paul is rounding off the argument and he says in verse 7, this principle of how we have died to the law. Do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has authority over someone only as long as that person lives. Okay, so that's the principle. And the principle is, when you have died, you are freed from that law. You are no longer bound to that law. And he gives the illustration of marriage in uh, verses 2 and 3. You know, So this is something that everyone would have accepted. Uh, the woman is married, and as long as the husband is still alive, she is bound by her vows to the husband. But when the husband dies, she is now free to marry another. Okay, so this is the principle, and the principle illustrated in verses 4 to 6, Paul applies this principle to the Roman Christians. And so he says in verse 4, So, my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. So, the parallels are not really there. Okay, I don't have time in this sermon to explain everything. But basically, there has been a death. We have died, and we have died because we were united to Christ, and when He died, we died. And our death meant we died to the law. We are no longer bound to the law. Now, what's the importance of that? The importance of that is we died to the law, so just as the woman can now marry another person, and do it legally, do it righteously. So we died to the law, which meant we can now belong to another. We can now marry Jesus. We can now belong to him who was raised from the dead. We can now belong to Jesus. And the whole point of belonging to Jesus, look at verse 4, is so that we might bear fruit for God. Now there's something interesting I want to point out to you here, which is, you know, when Jesus was asked the question, what is the whole point of the law? Okay, and the answer was, it is to love God and to love your neighbor. So the fulfillment of the law is love. Okay, that's, that's where the law is heading. The, the, the climax, the fulfillment of the law is love. Now you look at the words that Paul says in verse 4, bear fruit for God. 
Okay, I don't have time to um, show you all the working, but the fruit here, I think we can be helped to understand the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. And the first fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit is love. You see, so what Paul is saying here, the fulfillment of the law is love, but we have to die to this law. And only when we die to this law, then we can actually bear the fruit which is the fulfillment of the law. We have to die to that law to belong to Jesus, and then and only then can we bear the fruit which is actually what the law demands, which is love. Because we must die to the law, then we can belong to Jesus. And in belonging to Jesus, we are not belonging to another list of do's and don'ts. We are belonging to a person. We are belonging to a person who is beautiful, who is worthy, who is glorious, who has died to save us. You see, the difference between Jesus and the law is Jesus gives us the desire from inside. The law can only make demands from the outside. Jesus gives us the power from within to bear fruit, to keep the law, to obey the law. But the external law can only apply pressure from the outside. So we must die to the law, then we can produce the fulfillment of the law, which is love. Now I find what Jesus says in John 14:15 helpful for understanding this passage. In John 14, he says, if you love me, you will keep my command. If you love me, you will keep my command. Now, many Christians down the ages have misunderstood the words of Jesus to mean, oh, what Jesus is saying here is, okay, when I keep the commands, I'm loving him. I love him by keeping the commands. No, that is a colossal misunderstanding. Jesus is not saying, love him by keeping the commands. Rather, he is saying, love him. And if you truly love him, it will show itself in the wanting to please him, the wanting to obey him, the wanting to keep his commands. And what does it mean to love Jesus? It means to put him first. It means to adore him. It means to, you know you belong to someone who is worthy of your all. You love him. He is first place. You, you, you want to live for Him. He is everything to you. He is all satisfying. You love Him. And if you love Him, Jesus says, ah, then it will show itself. It will express itself. The indicator that there is love for Jesus, the indicator that we truly belong to someone like Jesus, is that we will keep His command. Belonging to someone like Jesus must change us. If you really belong to Jesus, it, it, it changes you. You cannot be the same person. If you are now married to Jesus, if Jesus is now the one who is your prize, your all. Now there's something else I should say here since we are here. Jesus does say, if you love me, you will keep my command. So whatever else it means, dying to the law, okay, when we die to the law, it doesn't mean 
we can ignore the first two-thirds of the Bible. You know, rip out all the laws and commands in the Bible. No, it doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean it has no longer any relevance for us. It, it means, doesn't mean that we don't study it, we ignore the law uh, in our church. No, no, because we need to know the law. We need to know what are His commandments. But we have died. We are no longer under this system where our performance to the law affects our destiny. We are under the system of grace where it is God in Christ who gives us eternal life. So we have died to the law. The next point, verses 7 to 13, the law is good. The law is good. Now at this point we should uh, recap what, you know, really at the heart of Romans is all about. At the heart of Romans, Paul is trying to present the gospel message, the gospel that is from God, the gospel message of how God righteously declares the unrighteous righteous in Christ. God righteously giving the verdict of righteous. And the people that he's giving the verdict of righteous to are the unrighteous. And he does this in Christ. But not just the verdict of righteous. Uh, we see in, verse, in chapter 6 that also he gives us the power, the ability to grow, the growing in holiness, the sanctification, the becoming more like Christ. All this is part of the gospel of what we have in Christ because we are united to him, because we are joined to him. The verdict of righteous justification, the power to grow and become more and more like Jesus, sanctification, because we are united, we are joined with Christ. So that is the heart of Paul's gospel. And, and on the way to establishing this, you know, we are here now in chapter 7, but on the way towards this, Paul has said, some pretty negative things about the law. I mean, we've looked at um, 1, uh, chapter 6, verse 14. You know, you are not under the law. Huh? We are not under the law. And then chapter 7, verse 5, we didn't look at it, but have a look now where Paul says, For when we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law. Huh? I mean, the law is arousing you know, causing my sinful passions to, to, to magnify, to increase. I mean, he said negative things about the law, and there are more that we can look at. Now, because Paul has been saying all these negative things about the law, it comes to the objection that he now anticipates in verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Okay, so this would be what? You know, his hearers, his uh, Jewish opponents or whatever. This would be the charge that they would lay on Paul. Paul, you are saying that the law that God gave, the law that, you know, God graciously gave his people, you are saying, you're making it out to be sinful, you're making it out to be a bad thing. And so Paul has to answer this objection. Now, I know it seems, you know, sort of irrelevant for us, um, but we need to really appreciate why Paul has to take this objection seriously. Because there is a lot at stake. Paul has to take this objection seriously because 
if the gospel message that he is proclaiming, if the gospel truly makes the law out to be a bad thing, okay, if his gospel message truly makes the law out to be a bad thing, then it would mean Paul's gospel was actually evil was actually immoral. It was actually not from God. Because if Paul's gospel, he says, okay, this is a message from God, but if the message from God makes the law of God to be a bad thing, then you can be sure the gospel is not from God. And if the gospel is not from God, it means that we have no justification. It means there is no sanctification. It means there is no salvation. It means we are still in our sins. It means we are still under the wrath of God. Okay, so a lot is at stake. Paul has to deal and deal conclusively with this objection. No, 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 no. I'm not saying that the law is sinful. My gospel message is not making the law out to be anything less than the good, perfect, holy law that it is. So, 7 to 13, that's what he is attempting to deal with. So you see verse 7, the second half of it. Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, sorry, um, verse 7, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. And then verse 12, So then, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. Okay, so that's the main point. The law is, is good. It is holy, it is righteous, it is perfect. Now, that much is clear, but what he says in the middle, okay, so in the middle he says the law is not sinful. The law is not sinful. Rather, the law exposes sin. The law defines sin for us. The law shows sin for what it is. So, Uh, Verse 7 again, I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. So to covet is to envy, is to want something that uh, you don't have, doesn't belong to you. It's something internal. So Paul says, the law defines sin, it exposes sin for what it is. The very concept of coveting is outlined by the law. Without the law, you know, clearly drawing that boundary, ah, this is sinful, this is coveting, then we would not have understood that this is sin. So that's the first thing that Paul says. Now, second thing that Paul says is, the law is not sinful, rather it is sin that is so utterly sinful that it uses the law to bring death to me. That's what he says in verse 8. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. Okay, so it's sin. It's sin that is so bad, sin that uses the law. Okay, and you know the the words there, um, it seize the opportunity. It's the idea of how sin uses the law as its launch pad. Sin uses the law as its base of operations to do that work of leading us to death. 
And then Paul says, sin using the law, and it produced in me every kind of coveting. So how, how does sin use the law? You know, how does, how does it, when the law comes and then it produces in us more coveting? You know, the law says do not covet, but why is it it produces in us more coveting? What, what is going on? Why are we, you know, it's, it's a bit like this, right? You know, before the law comes, okay, sin is like that, you know, lying dormant a bit. But when the law comes, you shall not cover. Whoa, then it goes into action. Whoa, okay, okay, then you start coveting. Why, why does it do this? Why does it do this? We need to understand what is the essence of sin. What is at the heart of sin? At the heart of sin is you and I wanting autonomy. Sin is about self-rule. We want to be at the center of the universe. We want to have the right to determine our life. Put it another way, we want to be God. We don't want to have a God over us. We want to be God. We want to self-rule. We want to decide what's right for me, what I want to do. And so when the true God lays down His command. See, we want to be God. And so when God lays down His command, what, what happens? Our sinful self sees that as an infringement. Hey, what's happening? How dare you tell me what to do? I want to be the center of the universe. I want to decide what's right. How, how dare you lay down this boundary? No, no, no. I want to be God, so I will show you who's in charge. I will cross that boundary. I will cross that line. Now, it may not be like this every time we sin consciously. But if I understand the Bible correctly, this at heart is what is happening. Me wanting to be God will react in this way when the true God lays down his boundary lines. Sin will be stirred up and aroused by the law. Okay, I'm just looking at the time. Now Paul goes on to say, Once I was alive, apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. Now, what is Paul talking about? When was he once alive and then he died? Most likely, <clears throat> he's talking about his Jewish experience of how as a young boy, before Bar Mitzvah. Okay, Bar Mitzvah is when every Jewish boy at the age of 13 goes through the public initiation of now at this age they are old enough, they are adult enough to be held accountable to the law. So most likely Paul is referring to that before he was aware, before he was accountable under the law. I mean, he felt alive. He, this was Paul not talking spiritually, but talking about his self-perception, his experience of being alive. But when he was held accountable under the law, ah, then the law produced in him all this sin and he realized he was a failure. He was dead. So that's probably what uh, he means. It's not straightforward verses. Okay, but this much is clear. Paul is saying the law is good. It is only the sinfulness of sin 
that the good law is actually being used as a tool to lead us only to death. The law is good, but because of the sinfulness of sin, the law can only lead to death. There is only one outcome, and that is death. Okay, so you just imagine uh, a loving father gives a car to his child. I mean, what a great gift, huh? Just like, you know, my dad gave me a car. So it's a car that you see me driving. I don't actually own it. You know, I can't afford a car like that. It's a gift that my dad gave to me, okay? But you imagine this loving father gives the gift of a good car, you know, to his son. And the car is a good gift. I mean, they can travel, get to uni on time, you know, whatever. But there is this unsavory friend that always hangs around that child. You know, this this you know, this this friend that always hangs around the child, and this friend exerts a great amount of influence on that child. And so with the gift of the car now given to the child, that friend uh, causes the child to drive recklessly. Within three months, 28 points, all deducted. But even after deduction, he's still driving, recklessly breaking limits, and then, you know, drinking and driving under the influence. And so, obviously, it leads eventually to death because the child is under the bad influence of that friend. So the question would be, why? I mean, why the, the, the loving father, why did you give such a gift to the child when you know the unsavory friend hangs around him and exerts you know, this, this undue influence on the child. Why still give such a good gift when you know this would happen? And the answer in verse 13 is, it is in order that sin might be recognized as sin. It used what is good to bring about my death so that through the commandment, sin might be seen clearly to be utterly sinful. Why the father gave the, ch- the child this good gift of the car is to show this is how bad your friend is. This is how utterly bad of an influence your friend is. The law is good. There's nothing wrong with the law. It is given, but it can only lead to death. And the reason is so that the utter sinfulness of sin can be exposed. Oh, friends, we must see clearly what sin is. We must see clearly how bad, how disastrous sin is. We must not even think of flirting with sin, of allowing, living happily with sin in our lives accommodating sin in our heart. We mustn't underestimate sin. And God's law, God's law, oh, it's a good thing. It is not a killjoy. It is not a straight jacket to control us, to manipulate us. No, it is good. It's how human life should be lived. The, the goodness that the law describes That is the height of human life as God designed, except that the law in itself has no power to bring that about. Sin is the problem. There's nothing wrong with God's law. We must see sin 
clearly for what it is. And oh, don't you hate it? Must we not hate sin as we see it more clearly? We must hate, hate sin. Hate it with all our hearts. Must hate sin as we see it more and more clearly. The third point that Paul makes in this chapter from verse 13 to 25 is that the law is impotent. The law is powerless. The law is impotent. Now you must know, those of you who went to Bible study, that there's a big, long-running debate almost you know, since after Paul wrote this letter. You know, um, you know is, is Paul speaking here as a Christian? Or is he speaking here as a non-Christian, as a Jew? And there are a few more other alternatives, which, you know, I mean, it's, you know, some of it's really far-fetched. And I would gather some of you are just waiting for this point. And you're waiting to hear what my position is. I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> because... I have to do one sermon on the whole of chapter 7. Okay, there is no way I can get into all the details. Okay, so I'm not going to tell you my position. You can try and ask me if you want. Okay, so what I want to do is I just want to focus on what is clear. Okay, I've got no time to go into the debate and you know, try to argue for what I think it is. But I want to focus on what is the main point, focus on what is clear, what is undisputed. So verse 13, did that which is good then become death to me? You see, Paul is dealing with this question because, you know, the previous verse, he said, yeah, sin used the law and it caused death. The law leads only to death. So he has to deal with this question. Did the good law become a cause of death? And his answer is, no, of course not. Of course not. The point that he's making is, that even though the law is good, the law is good, the law is holy, is righteous, it is good. Even though the law is good, it is completely powerless. It is utterly impotent to save from sin. And it cannot lead to life. Even though the law is good, but in the face of the overwhelming power of sin, it cannot save from sin. It cannot lead to life. And the reason why it cannot lead to life is because it's not because the law is flawed. It's not because there's some defect in the law. It's the point that Paul is making here is just how powerful. This is just how powerful sin is. The overwhelming power of sin. That's how powerful master sin is. Now remember that Paul has to deal with this because in his presentation of the gospel, he has said some pretty negative things about the law. How we must die to the law. And now he has to defend the gospel. Defend justification by faith. And to make clear that the problem is not with the law. So he says, verse 14, <clears throat> We know that the law is spiritual, but I am, okay, so some of your translations will say, I am unspiritual. Uh, but the word that Paul 
uses there is I am of the flesh. Okay, I have a sinful nature. Okay, so the law is spiritual. It is good. It is from God. It is spiritual in that it has its origins in the Holy Spirit. And the reason the law is transgressed, the reason why the law is broken, the reason why we cannot keep the law is not because there's a problem with the law, but because I am of the flesh. The law is spiritual. There's nothing wrong with the law, but I am of the flesh. I have a sinful nature, and the sinful nature in me is so overwhelmingly powerful. I am under the control of sin. The problem is in me. The problem is not with the law. So the point that he's making is, the problem of sin in me is so big that the good and spiritual law has no power to save. The problem that is in me, which is sin, me being so under sin, me being under the, the control, the bondage of sin, that is so powerful that the good law, the spiritual law, has no power to save. So to depict this problem, Paul recounts his experience in verse 15 to 17 and then repeats it in verse 18 to 20. So he says the same thing in you know, similar things twice. So in verse 15 he says, What I want to do, I do not do. Instead, what I hate, I do. See, so there's this, there's this struggle. I want to do this, but I don't do it. Instead, what I hate, that's what I end up doing. And then verse 18, I desire to do what is good. So yes, yes, I, I know the law says this, I want to do that which is good, but verse 18, I cannot carry it out. And then he says it twice in verse 17 and 20. The reason for this, the reason why I do what I don't want to do, the reason why I end up doing not that which is good, but that which is what I hate, the reason for this is just one. Just one reason. It is sin in me doing it. Now, don't get a mistaken idea that Paul is absolving himself of responsibility. Oh no, the devil made me do it. It wasn't me. No, no, that's, that's not his point. It is sin in me doing it, but who does it? It's me. So I bear the guilt. I bear the responsibility. I bear the consequences. But Paul is saying, the reason for this, 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 this conflict, I, I, I want to do this, but I end up doing what I don't want to do. This is good. I want to do what's good, but I end up doing what I hate. The reason is because it's sin. The sin, the indwelling sin in me is so powerful that it results in this. So is Paul here talking as a non-Christian Jew under the law? Or is he talking here as a Christian who is going back under the law? Well, in one sense, it doesn't really matter. In one sense. Because his focus, his main focus is on the misery. The misery of coming under the law. You want to go under the law, you want to be in that situation, you know, whether you're Christian or non-Christian, you want to come under the law, that's the misery. That's the hopelessness of depending on the law. Because of the overwhelming power of sin. See, there is only one hope. And Paul cries out in verse 24, 25. 
What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God, who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. There is only one hope, not, and it's not found in the law. It is thanks be to God and what God has done in Christ Jesus. Okay, so I know it's been a tough passage. Okay, so let me, let me just say the main point again of uh, verse 13 to 25. Okay, the main point, Paul's focus is on the misery, the hopelessness of coming under the law, the, the hopelessness of depending on the law. Why is it miserable? Why is it hopeless? Because of the overwhelming power of sin. And there's only one hope, what God has done in Christ Jesus. So you just imagine a staircase, and it's a, it's a perfectly good staircase. The staircase, this flight of stairs lead to God. Okay, so there's a staircase that leads to God, and there's a lift. The lift also leads to God. Okay, and the staircase is, you know, it's beautiful. There's uh, handrails, and at appropriate points in the stairs, there's a place to sit down and rest, and even, you know, take pictures, selfie, this and that. And the view is good. The staircase, it, it does get you to God. It does lead all the way up to God. So does the lift. The lift also brings you up to God. So the question is, you know, which way do you want to take? Now, I mean, you, different people got different answer, right? But you know, recently a lot of people have come to me and said, hey, you lost weight, huh? And it's true, I've lost, I've lost weight, okay? And, and one of the reasons why I've lost weight is because I choose to take the stairs when I can. So um, I try not to take the escalator, I mean, or, or the lift. And so when I check my health app on the phone, sometimes end of the day, I, I end up climbing... 40, 50 flights of stairs. Just, just you know, walking. And then I live on the 10th floor, and sometimes I would choose not to take the lift. I just climb up 10 floors, and I do it so often now that I'm used to it. I'm not, I'm not like... At the beginning, I was like... <sighs> okay, I'm used, so, there, so there's a reason to take the stairs. Okay, so stairs or lift, which one do you take? Okay, but there's more. You and I, we are in a wheelchair. And we are in a wheelchair and we are paralyzed from waist down. And so Paul is saying, oh, the miserableness, the hopelessness. Just, just look at those people who are depending on the staircase to get to God. I mean, they're, they're rolling a wheelchair as fast as they can. And then at the last minute, they push themselves off and bam, they land on the stairs. And then what? They pull themselves up. Try and pull themselves up. I mean, the miserable, the misery of depending on the law. The hopelessness of trying to get to God based on the stairs, based on the law. Are you listening? Because so many of you, you because you think, oh no, I can't get to God through the stairs, so I won't go to God. Oh, this, this stairs is too hard. Yeah, I can't make it. Okay, so I turn my back on this God thing. No, don't take the stairs. He's given the lift. Who will save us? It is God. 
and he has given us justification, sanctification in Christ Jesus. That's why chapter 7 verse 4. Such an amazing verse. You also died to the law through the body of Christ. We've died to the staircase. Now there is a, you know, no entry. You know, it's all covered in, in metal. We can't go that way. We can only take the lift. We've died to the law so that we can belong to Christ. We are now joined with Him. We are now joined to the One who is all-loving, all-satisfying, all-glorious, worthy of glorifying Him before every thought, word, and deed. If we are joined to Him, it cannot leave us unchanged. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, Jesus says. May God help us.